Let me take a seat. Well, we've come to chapter 2 of, of 1 Samuel, and for the sake of those perhaps who haven't been uh, able to attend uh, the previous weeks or are visiting us today, let me just quickly summarize uh, chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. In chapter 1, we are introduced to this family, this family from Ramah, in, uh, somewhere in Ephraim. Uh, the husband is called Elkanah. The, the first wife is named Hannah. She's barren. She doesn't have children. And there is another wife in the home, in this home. She's name is Penina. And seemingly, as we say in Portugal, this, this uh, uh, wife is a, a factory of babies. She seemingly just uh, has the capacity to, to, to give descendants to Elkanah which is very fine and well. But the poor Anna, as we read in chapter 1, had had her womb closed by the Lord. And not only that, Penina provoked her. And in chapter 1, we see how this unfolds in the life of Hannah and how she is brought to her knees year after year until that moment where she seemingly cannot take it anymore. And she... Gets in, goes into the temple in Shiloh as the family goes year on year to Shiloh to worship the Lord. And she pours out her heart before the Lord. And she prays and she asks and, and she pleads with the Lord. And it is in, the, in the, the temple, the tabernacle in Shiloh, that not only after her husband said what would be perhaps less than helpful uh, advice that even the high priest Eli calls her a drunkard woman accuses her mistakes her for a drunkard woman and accuses her of being a wicked woman but God heard her prayer in that day and God visited Hannah gave her a boy Samuel he's born but honey, you remember as she made this extraordinary, beautiful, one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible, in chapter 1, one of the most eloquent and moving prayers, perhaps only second to the prayers of our Lord Jesus. As she prayed this prayer, she made a vow. She made a promise to the Lord. She said, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give it back to you. Give me a son and I will give it back to you. And the great question as we, you're, we're coming to the end of chapter 1 is, will Anna, now that she has a son, follow through on her promise? Will she honor her word? She did. And it's in the fulfillment of that as the family once again goes from Ramah to, to Shiloh that uh, Four years, three, four years after Samuel was born, because the baby had to be weaned of, of her mother's breast milk, uh, it's in that, on that way, on her way to Shiloh, that we find her at the end of chapter one. She arrives at the tabernacle. In what perhaps we need to remember, again, the humanity of this passage. This is not just a fiction. This is a woman that really went through these things. 
It is at the end of that chapter that she has to hand her child to Eli, the high priest, to the care of him and her and his uh, not so likable sons. We'll read more about Eli's sons uh, in the coming weeks. But it is in this time that we again see Hannah pray and we arrive at chapter 2. And again, Hannah, in verse 1, raises up her voice and prays. This has been called Hannah's prayer. It's been called Hannah's uh, hymn, or uh, some other commentators have called this, these 10 verses, Hannah's psalm of thanksgiving. I've titled this sermon, Hannah's Magnificat. You know Magnificat is that song that's, that was sung by the Virgin Mary uh, there's recorded for us in Luke. This is Hannah's Magnificat. And it is a response of her heart for everything that the Lord has done for us. And now we will walk through these verses. First, to consider them theologically this morning. First, we will consider something of the things that are being opened up for us here. Uh, and then we'll, towards the end, try and see how this experience of Hannah needs to be something of our own experience with the Lord. So we'll first consider it theologically, and secondly, we'll consider it experientially, if that is the, the right way of expressing it. But nonetheless, let me just mention a few things before we come to consider it theologically. What a privilege for Hannah. Right here at the beginning of 1 Samuel, her prayer is recorded. And let me just emphasize the significance of this, the significance of this prayer. Because you, if you remember uh, the first sermon, we spoke about the particular time and period that this book is written, that, or that this book is recording for us. This is a time when Israel had no king. It's the time of the judges. Samuel is the last of judges. And this is the time that there is no king in Israel. And this is the book that hinges us in this period of history from the time of the judges to the time to the time of the monarchy it is the introduction to the whole account or history of the monarchy of israel and it is at the beginning that hannah here is privileged by god to offer this intelligent someone said theological and biblically informed praise of god at this great moment in the life of the, in history of redemption of, of Israel, in their life as well, in the life of Hannah, but in, in, in greater terms, in the life and history of the nation, God was pleased to bless this woman with giving this, with giving her the, the honor of putting this prayer here. And why is this prayer so significant? As I told you in the beginning, the book of Samuel is just one big book. We, we divided it into one Samuel and two Samuel, but that's just because at the time, scrolls had a limited capacity of being uh, rolled up. So because Samuel was such a big book, the scribes and the, and the Jews of old, they, they had to divide Samuel into two parts, two scrolls. So there was one Samuel and two Samuel. But if you would look at it as one big book, and if you would turn, we don't need to turn there now, to the end of Samuel, Samuel chapter, to Samuel chapter 23, we find that there is another prayer there. There is another song sung right at the end. There is a song at the beginning and a song at the end. At the beginning, Hannah prays and, and sings for what God is about to do. At the end, 
It's King David himself praying for what God had accomplished and done. The two bookends of the book of Samuel are these prayers. And Anna here introduces to us a lot of the themes in this song and in this hymn, the, a lot of, in this prayer, a lot of the themes that will unfold through the book of Samuel. The theme of kingship is here introduced. The theme of, be, of Messiah, of Christ, of being an anointed. The theme of, of God undertaking and fighting his own battles. The theme of, of not, not being man, a strength that moves the kingdom of God forward, of being God himself. These are themes that will all unfold through this book. And right here at the beginning, at this introduction, Hannah brings them to us. Through this woman, I love how St. Augustine said it. I don't quote Augustine enough, I think. Augustine said this, Through this woman, there speaks by the spirit of prophecy. Through this woman, the spirit speaks the Christian religion itself. What she prays here, what she sings here, is the Christian religion with which the humble are filled, so they rise up, Augustine says, which was in fact the chief theme that rang out in her hymn of praise. So we will look at this hymn of praise. Firstly, theologically, in hopefully in a quick, in a quick fashion, and we'll look in three parts. First, Hannah praises God for his person, for who God is. Secondly, Hannah praises God for his power, for what God does. And thirdly, uh, Hannah, verse 9 and 10, praises God for what God has promised to do, for the assurance of God's protection uh, for his people and his king. Verse 9 and 10, what he will do in the future. So, verse 1, 2, and 3. Number 1, praises, Hannah praises God for his person. We read in verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Notice here the my, the me, the it's my heart rejoices. It's my horn is exalted in the Lord. First of all, it is a very personal thing to Anna. It is a very experiential thing. She exalts in the Lord. She rejoices in the Lord. It's not, a, it's not that she is going through an emotional uh, moment. It's more than that. It's that her heart, and in the Hebrew, when, when she says her heart, it's not just, we speak about heart in a very, in our culture, heart is a very just emotional center. But for the, for the Hebrew mind, for the Middle Eastern mind, the heart is, is the center of everything. It is the center of emotion, yes, but of affections, of, of will, of the will. It is the center of everything. And she says, the center of my being, basically, that's what she's saying. The center of my being rejoices in who? In the Lord. Not in the gift that the Lord has given me, by the way, but in the giver. Is, this is not a praise to God for the gift. Is, this is a praise to God for the giver. And she's saying... You are the center of my joy. You are the everything that I am is caught up in, in God. My power, the horn, my horn is exalted. My power is exalted in the Lord. Because I rejoice in your salvation. My salvation, my redemption, my, my deliverance. In this case, probably she's uh, speaking both of being given a son, the answer to her prayer, and, but as well of, of of favor that she found. She says, My, I rejoice in your salvation. 
You see, Hanav here begins with personal experience, yes, but it's a personal experience in as much as she's praising a personal God. You cannot praise God if you don't know him. That is, that is idolatry. But because God is a personable a person uh, that can be related to, she's able to praise him. She's able to bring glory to his name. All praise for who he is it must necessarily come from an experience of him. And she has experienced him. She has seen her gra- uh, his grace, favor, and mercy shine. His smile shine upon her. And then she moves on to verse 2. Verse 2, she says, No one is holy like the Lord, for is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. And here she praises him for his holiness, for his oneness, for his otherness, for, for the fact that he is, that is the only God, that he is the rock. Some, uh, a very common name in the Old Testament for God is rock. Deuteronomy 32 Speaks of this. Many Psalms speak of God as that rock. And if you turn to the New Testament, and I don't want to uh, jump the gun here, but if you turn to the New Testament, who is called the rock? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter speaks of him in this way. And again, we find that, that Hannah is, is overwhelmed with something of of what God has done for her, but because of who he is. I also find it interesting. Notice this before we move forward, because there is a shift in verse 2 that is significant for the whole of, the, of the sec- this section. Notice that she begins to talk, me, my salvation, but as she gets to verse 2, she moves from speaking personally, she starts speaking corporately. It's our God. It's as if she's, she's no longer thinking about herself. Even in verse 1, you could argue that when she says, uh, I smile at my enemies. How many enemies did she have? It's kind of like she's, she's looking beyond her own personal condition and, and seeing that the, the fact that God has delivered her, the fact that God has heard her prayer, the fact that God has smiled upon her is the, is the, the proof that God is going to smile upon the nation. In the same way that when she prayed at Shiloh, when she was in anguish, she prayed like, like the Israelites prayed in, in, uh, in Egypt, that God would hear her, her, her in the midst of her anguish, like in Egypt, that if God is able to hear corporately, God is able to hear privately and personally as well. And here she goes, God is hearing me personally, he's also hearing us corporately. Something of the deliverance that came to me is something of the deliverance that will come to the nation. That's something of what's happening here. And notice how entirely appropriate it is that Hannah is praising God for his holiness. The notion that it carries in this, uh, uh, right at the beginning here, is that the notion that God is morally perfect, that he does not do anything wrong. And since God is holy, and since all his intentions are holy, the, the situation that Hannah faced herself, found herself uh, three, four years before in her barrenness must necessarily be something in the province of God for good. Even in judgment, 
especially towards his people, God is holy. He, is no, he has no evil. There is not a spot or a wrinkle in his being. And Hannah is able to say this. And I know for some of you, this is very weird. That, that you would be comforted. That you would be uh, encouraged by the holiness of God. But that is the truth for believers, isn't it? If you trust God, if you have been... Uh, re- by the Spirit brought to trust in this, in this God. The holiness of God is one of the most comforting things that we have. It is a pillow for us to lie our heads upon. To know that God is in control and that He is holy. And that nothing that He does is evil or wicked. It, for us believers, it is a, a comfort. There is no evil that He will ever visit upon us. Because He is no evil, has no evil in Himself. There is no spot or wrinkle, nor stain of sin in him. A commentator says then, but to the wicked, Garden Blakey, I love his commentary on this book. He says, to the wicked, oh, it's completely the opposite. It is a terror. It can only be terror. That God is holy is the most terrifying thing. You'd rather believe that he doesn't exist than to believe that there is such a holy God. Because now you know that you're in trouble. Because his eyes are too pure than to contemplate evil. And what a fearful thing is to fall in the hands of an angry God. But how blessed it is for us, he says. Yet to those who can appreciate it, Blakey says, how blessed a thing is the holiness of God. No darkness in him, no corruption, no infirmity, absolutely pure. He governs all on the principles of absolute purity. What a wonderful thing. And God's holiness also encourages us. This perhaps is a little bit of a, a practical point that I could leave towards the end, but let me just mention this. Hannah praises God for his holiness in spite of her affliction, even though she had been afflicted. Yes, you may say that she's only able to do this now. She wasn't doing it earlier in Shiloh, in the first prayer. She's only doing it now. But the reality is, God was just as holy then as as he is now as she's praising him for his holiness. And sometimes we are like that in the midst of affliction. It's very hard to see the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. It's very hard to see, to see the, that it will all get better. That there is a God who will make things better. But it is nonetheless true. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. He will get better. It, it, it will get better. It will fix, uh, in, the, in the God's providence, things will resolve for good. And yes, maybe Hannah could have, if, had she had the hindsight, could have said it as well in, 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 the, in the tabernacle in Shiloh in, on that first uh, four years earlier. But nonetheless, it was true then as it is true now. And that should be an encouragement for us to see her at the end being able to say this. That was nonetheless true at the beginning. Verse 3. Quickly, talk no more, Anna says so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Here is the fact we're emphasized that 
There is a God who sees everything. There is a God of knowledge that sees everything. And he will visit and he will weigh everything. Again, sorry if I'm quoting too much Blakey today, but it's, it's so wonderful how he expresses it. He says, his eye is on the every plot hatched in the darkness. He knows his faithful servants, what they aim at, what they suffer, what a strain is often put on their fidelity. God has absolute knowledge, wisdom, control, and he is not only of knowledge of the past things or of the present things, he has absolute knowledge of the future things. And that is a wonderful thing that we are to praise him for because he is not only holy, but he is all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect knowledge, past, present, and future, in all things working for his own glory and the highest good of his people. What a comfort. Hannah then moves on, verse 4 to verse 8. We have the, the, the praise not for God's person, but for God's power. We, we shift from uh, Hannah stop speak, speaking about who God is and start speaking about what God does. Verse 4 says that the bows of the, bows of the mighty men are broken. And those who stumble, those who were weak, those who were feeble, those who, who were frail, are girded, are dressed up, are uh, put on the, the robes of strength. They are given strength. They are girded with strength. And these images are not surprising to us, brothers and sisters, are they? These images are images that we find in the New Testament. Clearly, where the rich became poor. The one that was rich beyond all splendor becomes poor uh, so that those who were poor, destitute beggars that had absolutely nothing might enjoy the riches of Christ. It's, it's the New Testament message of the first will be last and the last will be first. Or, that, or how Jesus expressed that those who seek to, to save their lives will lose it and those who lose their lives for Christ's sake will gain it. It is the message of the gospel. How wonderful it is that a thousand years before, a thousand years before, this message is so clearly expressed here. Verse 5 says, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who had much, the rich, the, those who, who had so much food, now they have to work just to scrape by. And those who were hungry have ceased to, uh, for, uh, to hunger. And even the barren... This is very personal to Hannah. Even the barren has borne seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. Hannah herself, by, he, by this time only had one son, we believe. But by the end, we read later on that she had six sons, including Samuel. But here she's not talking of herself, is she? Because she had six by the end and not now. Certainly not now. She's talking about seven in the sense of completeness. The, the, the barren will have completeness, perfection of, of, of children. You see, verse 5 and verse 4, 5, 6, 7 uh, are, are just reminding us of examples where the Lord reverses human fortunes. It is God who kills and it is God who gives life. He brings down, he raises up, he makes poor, he makes rich. God is able to reverse the situation. And the, and the picture we're being presented here of what, what the Lord does is very simple and very clear and very straightforward. You want to summarize these verses? It's basically this. 
God is in control not only of birth and of death, not only of those two things, God is in control of everything that happens in between. From the cradle to the grave, everything, God is God's and is in God's control. God is sovereign over the whole of life. He owns the world. And that's what verse 8, if we jump a little bit further, that's what verse 8 implies. He raises the poor from the dust, again, those morisms, and lifts the beggar from the hash heap, from the ash heap, to set them among prisons and to make and make them inherit the throne of glory. Again, if in this side of the cross, this is this is language of, of what Christ has done. But look at what he says as for the pillars of the earth are of the Lord. Who is in control of everything? Who's who's holding the pillars of the earth metaphorically and even in a sense literally speaking? Who is sustaining the whole of the earth? It is the Lord. It is the Lord that has set these things. God upholds both the place and even the order in which things happen. Issues of life of death. He kills, he brings to life, he brings down, he raises up, he makes poor, he makes rich. It is all the Lord's work. God wonderfully does this. Fearfully and wonderfully does this. This is what Anna needed to know. This is what Anna was now praising God for. And this is what Anna needed to know three, four years before in Shiloh. And she was burdened and in anguish, pouring out her soul before the Lord. This is what she needed to know in her barren desperation, that the Savior of the brokenhearted, the Savior of those who have been crushed, condemned, those who are weak, those who are downtrodden, is God. And it is only God that can change her situation. And God did change her situation. We'll look at that in a, in a moment. Just finally, verses nine, uh, verse 9 speaks of God's Future treatment. Now, now from verse, in verse 9 and 10, Hannah is praising God for, for the future, for the assurances, uh, the prophetic assurances of what God will do. He will guard the feet of his saints, speaking in the future, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. And his most gracious treatment of his saints in verse 9. And in verse 10, we have perhaps the most shocking of statements. In this, whole, in this whole book, or in this whole book, no, in this whole section, the adversaries, up until now in this book, this is the most shocking statement. Let me put it this way. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The, this is not shocking. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. If you're a believer in the Old Testament, this is not shocking. If you're living in this time, this is not shocking. By now you know this. But this is where the shock comes in. He will give strength to his king. And you stop. What, what king, Anna? What king are you talking about? This is the first time we hear about, well, we've heard about kings up until now. In the book of Judges leading up to the book of Samuel, we're often reminded like a refrain, right? There was no king in Israel. At this time, there was no king in Israel. So, and, and there is no king in Israel at this time. What king are you talking about? What, what is this anointed, the, the horn of his anointed that you're talking about? See, Hannah knew. 
Hannah knew her prophecies. Throughout the, uh, the history of Israel up until this point, God had already said to the people, there will come a time when you have a king. It was a promise to Abraham that out of you will come kings. It was a promise to the people uh, as God was giving the law to, 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 uh, to, the people of, to the people of Israel in the wilderness. He gave them regulations for, for the time when they would have a king. They didn't have a king, but God already preemptively gave them laws to do with how they were to engage with the king of Israel. There was this idea that eventually the scepter shall not depart from, from Judah. And here Hannah knows this. There is a king coming. And, and the idea is that the king will fix the problems. The, the problem with the, in the time of the judges is that there was no king. And that's why the people were in this depraved situation. In this desperate situation. But now Hannah sees that the, by the fact that the Lord is acting in history again. That the Lord is hearing this prayer that she prayed. That the Lord is, is there smiling upon her. That it must be a sign that the Lord is about to smile upon the whole of the, of the nation. The king is coming. It is not going to be Samuel, although he, he, in a sense he, he performs those duties for a season. He is the prophet of God. And he is the, the first of prophets, you could say, properly speaking. He is the last of judges, the king, the, 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 the substitute for a king. And he's even the last a, a priest. He is of a priestly family. He is not the high priest. But there is something here, isn't there? He is a prophet, a judge. A priest. And then she says, again shocking, and uh, not shocking at this moment, but, but new, and the uh, exalt the horn of his anointed. This word of an anointed. This, this language of anointed. He's here introduced for the first time. There were many things up until now, they were anointed. Uh, the anointing of an instrument in the, in, uh, represented the, the consecration of an instrument. The anointing represented the power of God to, to bring about healing up until now. But here, Hannah speaks of someone who is properly called anointed. Ref referring to the king. The king as the anointed one. And again, the Psalms speak of, speak of king of a king as an anointed one, and uh, as the king as King David of the anointed one. And you know what's the Greek word for anointed, don't you? Christ, Christos. This I'm not going to read you in Greek, but this would read uh, in Greek. Uh, uh, I'm not going to read the whole verse in Greek, but this would read in Greek and exalt the horn of his Christus, of his Christos. He exalt the horn of his Christ. You see, Hannah's song is the first, another privilege that God gave Hannah. The first direct reference to the Messiah. Messiah is the, the word in Hebrew uh, for, for anointed. That's the original word there. It's the first reference of Christ. It is the first reference of, of an anointed one. And you might ask, well... Hannah, was Hannah thinking of Christ, our Lord Jesus? No, she was thinking of a king that would come, uh, that would be the anointed of God, but that would bring peace and it would bring final uh, vindication. Uh, she thought it would perhaps be David or perhaps even before Samuel, but the reality is that there was this expectation and this is the first time that this expectation 
shows up in the Old Testament that it is the coming of the king, the coming of the anointed that will fix all of these things. It is in Anna's lips that the first promise of Christ as the anointed one shows. There were other promises, certainly, of, of, of the coming of the seed of the woman, of the coming of, uh, uh, of a, a prophet like Moses up until now. But this is the first time that the word, the, the promise of a Messiah, is instilled into the collective mind of the people of God. What a privilege. What a privilege. Blakey again, I know I'm quoting a bit from him, but he, so, he speaks so marvelously. A son, and a son, he says, seems to give place to a higher son, through whom the land would be blessed as no one could have blessed it. All the hungry then, when thirsty souls would be guided to that living bread and living water of which whosoever ate and drank should never hunger or thirst again. Is, so it's, it is not surprising to us that when we come to the New Testament as this new son, miraculous son is being born, not of a barren woman this time, but of a virgin woman called Mary. It is not surprising to us that when Mary lifts up her voice to praise, most of the things that Hannah prays for are exactly the same. Most of the things that Mary praises God for are things that we see in Hannah's prayer. They're parallel. They, they are basically the one and the same. My soul magnifies the Lord. And as Mary, Mary says, let me read it to you. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For who is mighty has, uh, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly again. The hungry has filled with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, Abraham and to his seed forever. How appropriate it is that the New Testament counterpart is so similar. And that is the, and there is the answer. How is the poor to be made rich? How is the lowly to be lifted high? How is the feeble, the frail, the one who stumbled to be girded with strength? Hannah doesn't really say it, does she? How is these unholy, how is the unholy people of God the sinful people of God, to stand in the presence of a holy God. Hannah really doesn't know it yet, does she? But she knows it's coming. Well, but Mary knew a little bit more. And now we know much more. How, is all, how are all these things to be reversed? How is the sinner to be made a saint? Through Jesus Christ. Through him who, who is the bread of life and feeds us. To, through him who is God's king and God's Messiah, through him who is our savior, through his blood on the cross. 
what Hannah foresaw that uh, the, the, the poor would be made to sit with princes is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We are made to sit in the heavenly places. The presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I don't think Anna really understood what she was saying. A little bit, perhaps. But the glories of it, she didn't. Oh, brothers, it is a wonderful passage, this passage in Samuel. There is application for us. But I'll just say this, and I'll let you to ponder and to meditate upon it, because I, I still have four points of application that I'm not going to get through. I'll say this. Hannah did not have the New Testament. That very well-loved verse of ours that we so often remind ourselves of, that all things work together for the good of those who love Christ, who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Hannah did not have it. She did not know anything of this, of this verse. She lived long before Paul walked this wor- world But it is clear from her hymn, from her prayer, from this psalm that she prayed or wrote, perhaps not wrote, but that she prayed here and it was recorded for us, that she was absolutely convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is in control of everything and that everything results for the good of his people and that in, in the end everything will fall perfectly into place. Because he planned it, he orders it, not only to happen, the ends, but even the means and how those things work out. She trusted the providence of God in her life. She trusted the providence of God in, uh, in, and she was thankful for it and she was content with it. She trusted the, the providence of God in his character, the character of God. Uh, she trusted, well, let me put it this way. She knew the character of God reflected God's providence, that he is holy, therefore his providence will be holy. She trusted that the providence of God covers everything, both the good and the bad, both when things are going well and when we are in riches, as Paul says, in abounding, or when we are in in, in, lacking. She learned to be content. Why? Because she knew that God was in control, just like Paul. Or like Job expressed to the wife. You remember what Job's wife said to him. Curse God and he might kill you. Because look at your situation. What does he say? Would not we receive from God both the good and the evil? Hannah knew something of this. That God was powerful in control of both the ends. Of both the beginning and the end of our life. And everything that happens in between. And thirdly, she knew that God's ultimate providence our ultimate purpose in his providence would be brilliant and amazing and good for her. She trusted him for future things, that there would come a day where God would work out his plan according to his purpose. She perhaps didn't know that this would be by sending his son, his only begotten son, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. But Hannah had a glimpse. A glimpse of this, and she had the certainty that this would come. My friends, my my brothers and sisters, what's happening uh, in our life as a point of application? 
is in the very same way as Anna, just a, a small a small piece of the puzzle of the big mosaic that God is building. He has promised us. He has told us. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We are a part of the church. So whatever happens, whatever comes about, he is building up his church. We are not we're not those who are under the wrath of God. We are those that have received grace upon grace. So may God give us grace to know that, to trust that, even when the frowning providence, I know I've been quoting that hymn a lot recently, but even when the frowning providence seems to be before us, let us remind ourselves that there is a smiling face, because that is, to go to the end of, to, to introduce our last hymn, that is the firm foundation that we have. That final hymn that we will sing. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellence.